What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney? Hey, I'm Shonda Laney, and on this episode of What Got You There, I sit down with Richard Kosh, the author of the 80-20 principle and the new book, Unreasonable Success. What Richard has done throughout the years is uncovered some of the biggest principles that are persistent throughout the most successful people's lives. This was a fascinating conversation, diving into Richard's history, his journey, and so many of the things that we can learn from the people that he's studied throughout his life. Richard, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Great, thank you. Uh, thanks very much for inviting me, Sean. Very good to talk to you. You know, this is the, the honor is, is all here. You're someone I've learned <laughs> a lot from. So we're, we're going to talk a lot about action today, but I'd actually like to start in an interesting place, and that's around inaction. And I know a mentor of yours was Bill Bain, and he had a maxim, which was don't let action drive out thought. And I want yes. to know why was this maxim impactful for you? Well, it was uh, it was tremendous because we were all identified with uh, doing lots of things. And Bill was someone who lived by his maxim, because although everyone else in his company, Bain and Company, which I joined when I was 30 years old, uh, was rushing around. Everyone was sort of, you know, terribly frenetic. Uh, and everyone was also very scrunched up in the very attractive building in um, Faneuil Hall Marketplace in Boston. But, you know, there's this huge activity outside and you stepped into Bill Bain's office and it was huge, massive thing. There was uh, baseball and basketball memorabilia on the walls. It was, it was a really luxurious office. And there was no one in there apart from Bill and it was absolutely massive. And he was in a zen-like calm, which is very easy to do if you're the boss. <laughs> you've got hundreds of people doing your, at your beck and call. Uh, but his, his idea was very smart. He's saying it's much more important to think than it is to do. And that was great for him because he did the thinking and everyone else did the doing. And I think it's a, I think it's a wonderful thing. I mean, he completely transformed the way that um, a strategy consulting the business that, that I um, had been in at the Boston Consulting Group. He completely transformed the way uh, that it was run. And his model was, I mean, I, I, I won't go into all the details, but his model was vastly, vastly, vastly superior. But it involved a little bit of thought. And the thought lasted for decades. You know, the structure, the formula, the way that he set it up, uh, it was fabulous. And it worked, it worked, and it made him zillions of money and made some other people some money as well. Um, you, so thinking is much more important than acting. Were you able to have that Zen-like step-back mentality even when you weren't the boss and you were, you were one of the ones running around? No, <laughs> no, I'm afraid that uh, I understood it, but I couldn't do it until I thought, wouldn't it be a good idea to found my own or co-found my own strategy consulting firm? Because it was a very easy formula. You've got great people. The, the formula had been devised by the Boston Consulting Group, a competitive analysis. It was a new, very exciting uh, terrain. It was a new way of doing things. And um, I thought, well, wouldn't it be rather good to own one of these companies rather than to be one of the wage, very highly paid wage slaves? So uh, that's why three of us actually decided we, we were working in the London office of Bain and Company. We were three of six partners. And we thought, well, perhaps we could do this on our own. And that was, you know, that was my first really big break. 
uh, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't really terribly difficult because we took over the formula, we adapted it eventually after some false starts to a new market. And I think that's the secret of success in many ways, which is to, to take a formula that's proven and works and is new and is exciting and apply it to a slightly different context, slightly different way of doing things, slightly different market. How much are you on the lookout for, for one of these types of formulas? I'm wondering if it's just because you were actually part of, of Bain & Company, you got direct hand experience. Or do you see these patterns um, in other fields, even if you're not working directly for them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't believe that there are many principles in life. I, I mean, I've based my all of the success that I've had uh, has been not due to any personal brilliance, but due, due to using formulae. And there's only two, really, that I've ever used in my whole life. You know, one is the 80-20 principle, which I'm sure you're familiar with. 80% uh, of results come from 20% of courses. And if you can identify the courses, which are often not at all obvious, but if you can, then you're away to the races. And the other formula is what I call the STAR principle, which was one invented by the Boston Consulting Group, which said that all of the cash, nearly all of the cash, perhaps more than 100% of the cash from companies comes from the very few number of companies, and it's probably only about 5% rather than 20%, uh, which are the leaders in a very fast growth market or niche. And so I've based my whole career as a, as a consultant advising people to focus exclusively on their star businesses and to make sure that if there's not a star business, if they're in a very fast growth market, that they take market leadership. And as an investor, when I stopped being a consultant and started investing with an initially fairly small amount of money, which I got from my partners when I sold my shares in, in the company at age 39, you know, I've done exactly the same thing. All I've done is to look for star businesses. And usually it works. I mean, it's just amazing. You know, sometimes it doesn't work because you think you've got a star business, but the business definition isn't correct. And someone else comes along and, and basically disrupts you. Sometimes it's wrong because it's not actually a star business. It's a, it's a number two and you think it's going to become number one and it doesn't. But if you end up with a star business and you understand the segmentation, which is a little bit complex sometimes, the way the boundaries between competitors operate, if you understand that, well, Sean, it's quite easy. <laughs> it's not difficult. And what you do is you take a stake in this company and as it gets more successful, you buy more shares from the fellow shareholders and then you end up hopefully controlling the whole company and you, you carry on doing that for 10 years or until they, the, the, the signs either the market growth is going to go down or that the market leadership is in danger of disappearing and then you sell the company and what could be easier than that? Richard, it almost sounds like you're, you took that Zen-like approach where you were able to step back. It, it was very simple what, what you were able to analyze and assess and, and then it makes your decision making that much easier. Yes, I mean, as, as, as I've gone on, as I stopped being a consultant, I've, I have acquired Zen-like calm myself very often. I sit on my fish pond and think, <laughs> and I can do that for about half an hour, <laughs> and then I run out of thoughts, and then it's time to go and play tennis or take a bike ride or talk to people or do anything else that I want to do. So I don't think it's very difficult, uh, Sean. It's easy. You, you mentioned some of those things you do. Uh, I view them as, as these non-negotiables that, that you almost do every single day. Are there any of those you've done consistently over the years that you just think are tremendously valuable to your overall success and life satisfaction? 
Well, I don't know about success, but certainly satisfaction. Yes, uh, I exercise for a couple of hours each day. So either I go for a cycle ride or I play tennis or sometimes I walk or go hiking. Uh, sometimes I swim in the ocean if it's nearby. But, you know, it, it's absolutely, it's in the diary. It's two hours. Sometimes it's longer than that. And uh, that's it. You know, I don't, I don't uh, move telephone calls. You know, I just keep that as inviolate. But actually, Sean, it's, it's, it's better than that because, you know, most of the other things which are in my diary are things I really enjoy doing. So it's not, it's not, uh, I don't really need more than one non-negotiable. And in fact, the, the really non-negotiable thing is to have time to think and to enjoy what I'm doing. Time to think, except for when you, you've got to jump on the call with me uh, to discuss some of, this, some of this life success. You mentioned a few times now in the diary, is this a physical diary you keep and are, are jotting these things down in? Yeah, I'll see if I can wave it at you. Yeah, here we go. What you would call a calendar, I think, this thing here. Yeah. So anyway, basically it's, uh, what is it? It's what brand is it? Moleskin. yeah. So it has, it has uh, a page here for the uh, days and you can see, you know, at the moment I'm doing lots and lots of interviews, but generally if I go forward, this is March, <laughs> nothing there. Uh, and a lot of time I, to think. Then I write down what I'm going to do each day, which is one, two, three, four, five. Not, not, never very complicated. Uh, and then that's it. But most of these appointments are not business appointments. So, yeah, um, very easy. Very easy indeed. Yeah, you, you mentioned the 80-20 principle, and that's, the, that's how I came across you. I think it was about a decade ago I picked up the book, and it was one of those books that just, I mean, boom, like your mind just opens up and how you view things is fundamentally changed after that point. Your, your book, The 80-20 Principle, did that for me. I would love to know what that profound aha moment was for you before writing the book, where you realized the importance of this principle. Yes, I think I've said this uh, once before, so I hope no one's heard this before, but I was sitting in the Bodleian Library, which is a, a beautiful building in Oxford. I was 19 years old. And I was reading in um, books. The, the Bodleian is one of the very few copyright uh, libraries in the world. I don't know how many there are, perhaps half a dozen. So every single book that's ever published goes there. And if you're a student there, you can actually go and ask for anything. And they will search in the stacks underneath. And there's a huge um, basement down there. I've never been down in the basement, but I imagine it's, uh, it's very big because it's got all the books that have ever been written. And I had heard about this guy called Vilfredo Pareto, who was an economist. Why I'd heard about him, I don't know, because I wasn't studying economics or at Oxford there's a degree called PPE, uh, Politics, Philosophy and Economics. I was reading history. So in Oxford they say reading, which is uh, sort of, you know, we don't study things in Oxford, we read. <laughs> and we don't go to lectures either because that's, that's, that's for the masses. So anyway, I was reading history. Uh, but anyway, I'd heard about this book, so I ordered it up. It was called about, the, I think it was called The Course of Economic Theory. And it was by this economist who's a shaggy haired guy. If you look at the derogatives of the early photographs of him, he was a professor at Lowstone University. And uh, he was highly respected by uh, some of the people. I, I knew one particular guy who was a Marxist and he said, you know, have you, have you never read Pareto? 
And I said, who is Pareto? <laughs> so anyway, when I found out who Pareto was, he, Pareto wasn't a Marxist himself, but he was, he was quite left-wing. And so I looked, I looked at this book. I, I, first of all, I, I found out what the book was called and I ordered it up and then I opened the book and Sean, I got a bit of a surprise because it was in French. <laughs> so I struggled a bit with the French and then I went back the following day with the French dictionary <laughs> to actually uh, make sure that I understood what he was saying. And what this guy had done, which no one I don't think had ever done before, was look at the statistics on wealth distribution and income distribution. Uh, and he did it for England in the 19th century. And later on, he did it for Switzerland and Italy and France and Germany and so on and so forth. And then he went back in previous centuries. But to cut a long story short, what, what he actually uh, looked at was how much of the wealth belonged to what percentage of the people who were generating the wealth. So it wasn't the total population. It was just people who were employed. Uh, if he was looking at employment, and if it was um, if it was people who had property, it would be above a certain level. Anyway, he, he looked at this and he discovered that there was this algebraic equation, so very complicated. I couldn't follow it, but basically what it what it said was that there was a linear relationship if you plotted it on a log log scale, technical stuff, you know, which was an almost perfect fit which said, as you actually increased the category of wealth, the number of people that were in that category dropped by the same percentage or the same absolute amount. And, and he was bemused by the fact that the fit was extraordinarily good. Now, nowadays we draw graphs of these things, but in those days they actually stuck to the algebra and they, but they had worked out how to look at the, uh, the good, goodness of the fit. And he was astonished to see that this relationship existed. And what it meant was approximately, he never said this, but people have interpolated it later, but 20% of people accounted for 80% of wealth. But it wasn't just that, because if you took a 20% of the 20%, 4%, then they actually uh, accounted for the same relative proportion. So that's 64% of the total wealth belonged to the 4% and so on and so forth. And every country and every uh, nation that he looked at was almost exactly the same. And he thought it was magic. He thought, yeah. Now, <laughs> what do you do with this? I had an idea. I said to myself, well, if there's this relationship, then perhaps I can apply it to my uh, examinations. Because at that stage, I knew that in a year's time, I was going to sit my final examinations. And at Oxford, the degree that you get depends entirely on the, the, the hours of examinations, 11 examinations, three hours each, and you have to sit down and write these, and then they, they take them away, they read them, and then they tell you what class of degree you've got. Well, I was bemused by the fact that, that there were lots and lots of questions on these uh, exam things. I actually got the, the previous uh, 20 years of, of uh, exams. And what I did was to find out what were the 20% of questions that had come up most often. And I discovered in each paper, there were five or six questions, which had almost with 100%, not 80%, not 100% reliability, sometimes 95% had actually come up. 
So if you were studying the, the European history in the 18th and 19th century, there was always a question about the French Revolution. And they asked the question lots of different ways, but, but basically it was always what caused the French Revolution. And then there was always a question on the origins of the First World War, because that was a great source of uh, controversy and dispute. You know, was it imperialism? Was it German aggression? Of course, it wasn't the English being slightly shirty or anything like that. Oh, no. No, whatever it was, there were, there were explanations of that. And of course, that, that tested the way that you would analyze things and the concepts and, and all the rest of it. So it was, it was, it was quite good fun answering. So what I did was to select six questions for each of my 11 papers. And I mugged up on those questions, Sean, to the extent that you could possibly do. And I looked for obscure quotations in preferably in a foreign language that I didn't speak, which I would then learn to get absolutely perfect, putting the accents in the right place and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then for the rest of the vast amount of subject, I didn't revise that. In fact, I didn't know in many cases anything about it. I was betting that these, uh, that at least three out of these six questions that I had mugged up on would actually come up. And you know what happened. It did, they did. It, you know, it, it worked perfectly. And I got one of the very best degrees in my year in history. I think it was the second best. That, that anyone had ever got. And everyone couldn't believe it because <laughs> they didn't think I was that, that I was that interested in history or I was that, I was that uh, learned or whatever, and I wasn't. So that was, that was how the 80 Journey Principles started me off. And then after that, I've been applying it to everything. And uh, there's always something which actually explains why, uh, why success happens. I've always believed in looking for, and one of the constant themes is, I've always been interested in two things, money and success. You know, how is it that you make more money and how is it that, you, that people become very successful? Often I've noted that the people who become very successful don't really deserve it or don't, they don't seem to deserve it because they're not cleverer than other people. They're not ostensibly smarter than other people. Um, they don't work harder than other people. They're not even well, more well-connected than other people. Why is it that some people who, you know, basically achieve fantastic things manage to do that and the other people don't? And so, you know, in my, in my most recent book, Unreasonable Success, is called Unreasonable Success because, firstly, it's incredible how successful some individuals can be relative to the vast number of people that there are in the world. Uh, secondly, it's unreasonable often because it isn't achieved by analysis. It's achieved by some kind of intuition or imagination that the people have. And it's unreasonable because these people, in a, in a sense, don't really deserve it. And so, you know, what I, what I did when I was writing the book was to try and identify like Mr. Professor Pareto might have done if he had been interested in using uh, his concepts to write books. Um, Try to identify what, what were there any common themes? And I took 20 people who had been very, very wildly successful in completely different areas. Madonna was one of them, uh, Paul of Tars, the so-called uh, Saint Paul. I hate to call him a saint because saints sound stuffy and established and he was anything but that. 
uh, is in it, um, and uh, Jeff Bezos is in it, and Steve Jobs is in it, but not just uh, business people. So John Maynard Keynes, probably the most successful economist of the 20th century, is in there. Albert Einstein's in there. Marie Curie's in there. The entrepreneur uh, Helena Rubinstein, who invented cosmetics, in, and so on and so forth. So uh, Bob Dylan's in there as well, uh, because I quite like Optimus music because it struck me as extraordinary that he should be so successful when he couldn't sing uh, and 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 so on so I looked for are there any common traits of these 20 people and uh, I started with a long list of 50 possible traits and I ended up with nine that they all had all of them and then so I wrote the book around that. And, you know, there were one or two surprises there, but, but there were nine characteristics. And I thought, well, you know, I'm always looking to try and make things easier for myself and easier for other people by cutting out the vast swathe of stuff that you don't need to do. Like I didn't need to know 60 answers to 60 questions in each of the exams. I only needed to have the answers to three. And so I, 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 I took six. So if you know that certain things are very important, then you just tick them off. <laughs> Have I done that? Have I done that? Yeah, and so on and so forth. So my theory, which is, it's just a theory because I haven't proved it yet, is not only that it applies to these people, but it can apply to anyone. That anyone can be successful if they master these nine particular attributes. Some of them are strategies, some of them are attitudes, some of them are, are particular sort of skills but that none of them are particularly difficult or none of them are difficult to understand. Um, so anyway, that's my latest project is to try and see whether it works in practice. And so I'm, 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 I'm constantly finding people who have not yet been successful and using them as guinea pigs and, so, and, and trying to say to them, we'll go through these nine things and see whether you can master them. And I'm in, I'm in the middle of doing it and it's absolutely fascinating. Results. Yeah, results not yet determined. So, <laughs> Believe me, we're, we're going to dive in, into some of these nine landmarks of success. But, but one of the parts and points that you bring up, which I just love so much, is because I've seen it myself, when I cut out all of the clutter and can really step back and I've left with less decisions to make, that's when my clearest thinking happens and my best decisions are made. Uh, so when I feel like I'm moving around too much, that's when I know I've got to step back. So I love hearing how that's factored in for you. But what I thought one of the most exciting finds in your, in your new book was that the way we position ourselves for success is far more important than our talent and competence. And I would love for you just to expand on this. Yes, it's not ability. It's actually, it is focus. It is um, having had a particular set of experiences. And uh, it's actually some, let me take a couple of the things which are most important and talk about the way that not many people really think that they're important. One, one of the things which I discovered was that the ability to thrive on setbacks was much more important than avoiding setbacks. In fact, setbacks in careers turned out very often to be the starting point or the prelude to actually having remarkable success. So, I, I mean, I take an example like Winston Churchill. Everyone thinks Winston Churchill, you know, fantastic orator, you know, basically eased his way into number 10 Downing Street and then um, managed to get the world to defeat Adolf Hitler. Well, the, the last half of that is right. 
But actually, throughout most of his career, Winston Churchill was a dreadful failure. Uh, and uh, most people, when they have one setback, give up, basically. They, 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 re they retreat wounded. Some people do it after two or three. <laughs> but, you know, basically, if you keep going with, with setbacks, doing something different, not doing the same thing again, obviously, which would be really stupid, uh, it, it, it's very important. And so just understanding the value of setbacks because they give you feedback and they tell you this particular path is not the way to go is, is very useful. And one of the other things which is very useful, which uh, I think is an original finding in the book, is, is that all of these people, all of these 20 people, had what I call a transforming experience. And a transforming experience means that you join a company or a group of people or a social movement, or you go somewhere or you do something where when you go into the experience, you're one person. And when you come out shorn of the experience, maybe a year later, maybe much more than that, you are a different sort of person because you've acquired some very important, rare knowledge in the process of doing that. And all of these people had transforming experiences. So, of course, they didn't plan their transforming experiences. Some of these transforming experiences were very unpleasant. For example, um, one, one of the people, uh, Viktor Frankl, was sent to Auschwitz and other concentration camps by Hitler. But that proved to be his transforming experience. Other things were very unpleasant. Mrs. Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher, is in the book. And her transforming experience was when uh, Leopoldi Gautieri, the fascist dictator of Argentina, decided to invade the Falkland Islands. She said it was the worst moment of her life. Actually, it was the making of Mrs. Thatcher and the making of her government. She was about to be thrown out of government, but then she lasted for quite a considerable time. And she, in her own view, had transformed Britain by the time that she left office. Um, people might disagree with that, but my definition of success is that people achieve something which is really uh, surprising and which they really wanted to do. And that's certainly true in her case. So if you, if you know that a transforming experience is important, then perhaps you should think about, have I had a transforming experience? And if I haven't had a transforming experience, what kind of transforming experience might be um, available? And I'm not suggesting that people should necessarily try and plan their transform experience, but they should be aware of opportunities that come along. Opportunity is very often muffled. You know, you hear a, a very faint knock on the door. Uh, and the question is, are you listening? You know, is, that, is, that, is it likely that you're actually going to hear that? And then you might think, well, perhaps this could be my transforming experience, or it might lead to my transforming experience. But... So I'm trying to move the odds in people's favor by saying, well, what's important to do? And then if you haven't checked it off, then be aware that if you, if you really want to be much more successful than you deserve, this is what you need to do. You bring up what Margaret Thatcher said about the, this was the worst point in her, in her life. And I feel like in my own life, some of the most difficult times in the moment seem unbearable and that this will be the worst thing I want to learn from this at all few years advanced hindsight, you're able to look back and some of those most important moments were the most difficult in the time. Uh, that, that's something I, I know I've seen. I would love to know, though, any setbacks that you think led to transforming experiences for you? 
Yes, I'd, I got fired by the Boston Consulting Group. So I was, it, <laughs> when I was 25, I went to work for them. And they gave me this idea that I founded, you know, the ability to make money on, you know, the, the, the star principle. They actually, you know, gave this to me and I thought it's wonderful. And I, I believed it perhaps more than any of them did. Um, and, and then after four years, I uh, got fired uh, because I couldn't do the very heavy duty analysis and quantitative uh, 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 number crunching, which was their stop in trade. And so, you know, they, they said, well, I'm sorry, <laughs> we can't promote you. And, uh, and why was that such a good experience for me? Well, it seemed a terrible experience at the time, as you said, whatever your unfortunate experience was, you know, often it's a, it's a death of a loved one or it's, it's a serious illness or it's some, something like that, you know. In my case, it was a profound failure because I always thought that I was going to be successful. And then my first really serious job they fired me. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. Uh, and and I, so I'd, I'd redoubled my efforts and all, all the rest of it. Well, that failure then led me to think, do I want to stay in this world of strategy consulting, which I absolutely loved? Or should I go and do something different? So what, what I actually, um, what I actually uh, uh, did was to join Bain & Company. And that was I was talking about Bain and Company and Bill Bain's office because I managed to inveigle an interview with him, which you know went incredibly well as it happened. But but you know, then I compared why was it that BCG was very successful and why was it that Bain and Company was very successful and was there a better way? And I I actually reckon that the Bain and Company formula I won't go into all the details, but was was infinitely superior to that of the Boston Consulting Group. Because one of the things that they did was only work for the head person in an organization, the chief executive officer. They wouldn't work for a board director. They wouldn't work for the head of a particular function, manufacturing or marketing or whatever. And just that one decision was you know, hugely important because what it meant was the person that they were working for had got power. And this was one of the great thoughts that Zen like. Bill Bain sort of, he dreamed it up, you know, he said, you know, what would happen? Because he, he actually thought, what are the most successful case studies that I was involved in, in the Boston Consulting Group? And he realized it was when they were working for the chief executive. So then he said, well, maybe we should only work for chief executives. So anyway, that gave me the formula or part of the formula for then what we did in, in the company, which I co-founded, LEK. We, we took that particular thing, we modified it, we, we changed it in certain directions. But, you know, if I, if I had not had the setback at BCG, I would never have worked at Bain & Company and I would never have been able to compare and contrast the way that these two firms, which on the surface looked exactly the same, they had the same people, you know, from the same universities, all very young, all incredibly hardworking, all very smart and all the rest of it. They had all those people, but they... They uh, actually uh, were very different in the way they, they handled the work. And, and just thinking about that was really valuable to me. So, yeah, I mean, getting fired, I, I, can't, I quite recommend getting fired, actually, particularly <laughs> from a job that you love, and particularly when you really hate being fired. It can be very useful. 
<laughs> that, that, that's very both comical and insightful. One thing I'm really intrigued by real quick, and I hope this leads somewhere, is around uncovering the formula. And I view that this is unique insights. You were the one of the, one of the people who've actually uncovered some of these formulas. What does that process look like for you when you're extracting out a principle like this or a formula? Are you just playing and, and toiling with these ideas in your head? Or are you writing them out? How, how are you uncovering them even further? I draw pictures. I mean, because I'm not very good at numbers, so I do pictures instead. And I look for patterns, basically. It's pattern recognition. Um, but I have to say that the formulae which have been most successful uh, for me in my career um, are not those which I've invented. They're things which are sitting there. I mean, Marshall McLuhan said something very good, very brilliant, I think, which is that, you know, people try and protect secrets. And this is very often the case when people think they've got a great business formula or whatever, they, they get very paranoid. They don't want competitors to hear about it and all the rest of it. Well, Marshall McLuhan said, you know, things that are pretty trivial, you know, basically need protection, but things that are very, very profound don't need protection because public incredulity prevents people from seeing them. And so, you know, to the extent that I ha have had any sort of really original uh, thoughts, they've only been stolen from other people, basically. And so I do encourage people, if you're looking for principles, perhaps don't try and invent your own principles. Try and see if there is something which is empirically true, it's been proven, it's really useful in a particular area, and then you can apply it in a slightly different area. And it doesn't have to be very different. So taking other people's formulae, I think, is, is uh, well, it's easier, and um, probably it's better than what I would have invented anyway. So, so yes. Yeah. If you, if you start looking hard enough, there's going to be some of those persistent patterns of excellence. Uh, no, no, no need to reinvent the wheel there. One thing I was really intrigued about when you mentioned uh, that you were fired is just kind of talking about you, you believed in yourself uh, about achieving that success. And I know self-belief, this is how you start out the book. And I would just love to know how you, you, or how you found the people in the book, how they developed that self-belief, or was this something they were born with? No, it wasn't something they were born with. There were actually three people. Only three people in the book were born with this sense of, of overweening self-belief, with it, despite evidence to the contrary. One of them was Winston Churchill. Uh, another one of them was Bob Dylan, who, you know, arrived as a uh, completely unsuccessful and raw teenager. I think he was 17 years old when he went to New York City and started um, trying to write uh, folk songs, which no one did really. The whole point about folk songs was that they belonged to the past. Um, and the other one was John Maynard Keynes, whose father had been a professor at um, Cambridge University. And uh, therefore, he assumed, as a member of the ruling classes, that he, you know, basically had inherited his father's mantle as a, as a professor and therefore was going to think great thoughts. But most of these other people actually didn't start, or all of these, the other 17 people didn't start with any uh, really clear idea. And Albert Einstein's a curious example, though, because everyone thinks Einstein was, you know, terribly clever um, and, um, you know, an absolute genius. But, but when he started out, he was a, a third grade, I mean, that was, that was, not, that was an objective description, uh, patent office clerk. And, uh, you know, he, what he did was to think about some of the big issues. And then he read everything 
that any um, person, quantum physicist, anyone playing about with uh, um, mechanics, uh, quantum mechanics, in the very at the very end of the 19th century was, was thinking about. And then he um, basically had, you know, this, this sort of, you know, absolute insight about the nature of time and that time was not absolute and so on and so forth. But but they but he didn't start with any great self-confidence. Uh, he couldn't get into the best university in Zurich. He ended up going to the Polytechnic, which wasn't very good. And he graduated at the bottom of his class. <laughs> and one other thing which was very surprising was that he uh, he couldn't do, and I identify with this because I can't do it either. He couldn't do what in English English we call mathematics, and in North America is called math. You you guys talk about math, don't you? We talk about maths anyway. Anyway, he couldn't do sums. He couldn't do arithmetic, uh, but it didn't matter because he believed. He had this weird idea that God was kind of like a mad scientist, but like, I've come to think of that, Albert Einstein. But, and God had planted the secrets to the universe and how the universe worked. He'd given clues, you know, like, like a gardener sort of, you know, planting, I don't know, stuff for kids at Easter, Easter eggs or whatever, and he put them in the most odd places. Well, you know, that's what he thought. God was, you know, he had this thing. It wasn't a particularly religious view of God. It was a, a, a God as an intellectual. <laughs> and, but he was quite sure that, that the clues were there and that he could find them. And so having thought of one of those things, you know, and having written this paper about the, um, abs sorry, the relative nature, wrong, absolute nature of time, which he wrote in 1905, and he managed to get that published. And some of the best physicists in Europe sort of wrote to him and said, you know, I was very struck with this paper. Well, obviously, if, you know, the, the, the best physicists in the world are, are saying you've written a very good paper, even though no one had ever heard of Albert Einstein, he had no qualifications whatsoever. He hadn't studied um, at any senior level, he, he'd uh, just done an undergraduate degree and had not done very well at that. But when people give you a bit of credit for that, and they are the most famous people in their field in Europe, well, naturally, it would go to your head a little bit. So, so he, started, he started from this weird view of what God was doing, and then he came up with an idea, and then he gradually became incredibly self-confident, and, and to, to the extent that, that you know, he never, he was very unusual for a scientist because he never tried to prove anything. He never got involved. And this is another way, perhaps reason why I identify him. He never tried to do experiments. He never actually tried to prove the, the thesis that he put forward. And it actually took, I think, another 17 years or something like that when there was a, a, a partial eclipse of the, of the sun, et cetera, for people to take his theory and prove that the numbers actually worked. But, you know, he said, you know, people said, well, Albert Einstein, you must be amazed that, that you've been vindicated and that every, everyone said it wouldn't work and it's worked. And he was, you know, and he was quite, you know, he was humble, but he was arrogant at the same time. And he just said, well, of course, I always knew it would work. So that is extraordinary self-confidence. 
you get confidence very often from a sense of self-doubt as well. I mean, this, you can see this in the case of Steve Jobs. But the, the, the most important reason that he was successful was that he was adopted and he had a view of his adoption, which meant that he was uh, abandoned by his natural biological parents, uh, that he was taken in by some very, very smart people who were his real, well, not his real, but, but his de facto parents, the people who adopted him and loved him and, and thought that he was wonderful and so on and so forth. So he was special, but he was abandoned. And he always had this sense of, of profound self-doubt. And the way in which that manifested itself, Sean, was that he wanted to control everything that he did. And so, whereas, you know, Bill Gates was quite happy to do software and other people to do hardware, for Steve Jobs, he needed to control the whole process end to end. So in other words, he wanted to do the software, but he also wanted to do the hardware as well, which makes it hugely more difficult. But he saw the product as kind of like an extension of his own personality. And because he had these, this feeling of inadequacy, he had to prove that he could produce or his team could produce because he himself was absolutely hopeless at, um, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't, you know, do software, write software for Toffee, whereas, you know, Bill Gates was an absolute dab hand at it. But he knew what he wanted to do and he, he could describe it and his team would then produce it. But it, it came from partly from a sense of inadequacy. And I can identify with this because, you know, when I was very young, they thought that I was backward and, and that, 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 you know, basically um, I was never going to do anything. So I invented in my own mind sort of a winning scenario where, you know, what I was going to do was to become, you know, very rich. And it was completely absurd because my, my parents didn't have any money and they didn't have any interest in ha having any money and all the rest of it. But I invented this sort of mythical future to compensate for quite a barren existence, you know, where, you know, my sister wouldn't talk to me, you know, they thought I was stupid and so on and so forth. So very often self-doubt can contribute to self-belief. And as long as you can compensate, as long as you can, at one level, you don't believe in yourself. Another level, you can believe in yourself. And the tension between the two sets up something, a challenge. I mean, you've probably seen this in athletics and sport and all kinds of areas. Uh, that, that it's the people who actually haven't had the advantages. And it's often the people who are not expected to succeed, who create this tremendous motivation inside themselves. So self-belief is not a simple matter. But I think the reason that most people don't acquire self-belief is, is that they don't want to do anything enough. So if you, if, if you want to do something enough, you've got to create the, the task. You've got to somehow acquire this belief in yourself. And uh, I'm absolutely convinced that that can be simulated, that it isn't something that you're born with, to come back to your question. It's something that you can teach yourself but actually other people can teach you as well how to acquire self-belief 
because self-belief is not something that you get in the abstract. It's something very concrete. You know, you don't believe, oh, I'm, you know, the stars are lining up for me and, you know, I'm going to be very successful. You, you can only be very successful at something. And it's the, I think the first step to self-belief is identifying what that something might be. And that's another one of the nine things in the book, the nine landmarks, which is, is having an idea of a breakthrough achievement. Only one in your whole life. That's all you need. You have loads and loads of time. But if you can think of something fantastic that you might achieve, which would change the world in a way that you want to change the world, then you're hugely advantaged against the other people in the world, the vast majority, the 99.99999% of people who never actually think about what great achievement they might, they might make. And, you know, once you've, once you've got a goal, you know, it, it's, it's so easy then to work out the steps to implement. Maybe it doesn't work out. So then you get another goal, you know, but it, it's, it's all about ambition. It's all about the, the strength and the um, drive and the sheer preposterous uh, arrogance that you can invest to have that ambition. And the reason that most people are not successful, the reason that most people don't acquire self-belief is that they don't really want to. It's going to be very hard to accomplish any type of great success without at least striving for something. Uh, that's, what, that's what I love, that great point. You bring up and then around self-doubt and self-doubt and self-belief, that tension there, it, 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 it's always there. One, one thing that keeps popping up, and, and you mentioned earlier about your ability to pull out patterns, a pattern that seems to keep popping up here. You mentioned the need to do it for yourself around how Steve Jobs operates and then even for yourself. I'm wondering how you how you view that marrying of being able to understand who you are at your core and, and where your talents line up. I know this is kind of an, an open-ended um, question here, but but how important is that understanding who you are, what your unique personality is uh, in, in alignment with what you're able to accomplish? I, I don't think you actually need to have that. I mean, I think very often it happens to you because of experiences and the way that you react to experiences. I mean, there's a little story in the book, which I, I, I like telling because I think it's, I think it's emblematic. Of, and many people just sort of don't have this kind of experience um, and, and they don't think anything of it and it doesn't go anywhere, but I, I think it can go somewhere. When I was nine years old, I had a very humiliating experience. My parents and I um, went to see our, um, my Auntie Louise, the brother of my father, sorry, the uh, sister of my father, and she lived in a little town in the south of England called Seaford, which is where retired folk would go. So, you know, it was a nice little seaside town, nothing very exciting, nothing ever happened there. But um, we went to visit um, my Auntie Louise. But we were terrified, all three of us. In fact, my sister was so terrified that she refused to go. And my parents were terrified. They weren't terrified of, of my auntie Louise. They were terrified of her living companion because she had been, she, she'd actually achieved something in an age which was quite difficult to achieve. She'd become quite a senior civil servant. So member of the, the British bureaucracy, which advises governments. 
And her boss had been a woman always known as Miss Gates, Evelyn Gates. She actually had been married, but for some reason, I don't know, she was always referred to as Miss Gates, perhaps, perhaps because she was no longer married, I don't know. Anyway, she lived with my auntie Louise and we were terrified of her because she was uh, a very, very clever woman, but she was dominant and she was, uh, I don't know if there was any malice in it, but, but she, she was basically aggressive. And so one day, there I was, I had a little book and I was sort of writing, or maybe drawing in this little book, nine years old. And the worst thing happened was Miss Gates came into the room and there was nobody else in the room. So I was a little bit terrified by that. And then she, she started talking to me and I, that also was something which she dreaded because you knew that she was going to quiz you and you knew that she'd only ask questions that you didn't, couldn't possibly have the answers to. So she said to me, Richard, what are you going to be when you grow up? You know, what are you going to do with your life? And of course, I had no idea at all <laughs> what the answer to this question was. So I blurted out the first thing that came into my head, which was, I want to be a millionaire. Now, this was in the days when a million pounds was an awful lot of money. Uh, and uh, she looked at me and then she went tut tut and she said that is a ridiculous answer <laughs> she said you know your, your parents haven't got any money and they'll never have any money uh, and uh, how you can possibly think that you can become a very wealthy person given your modest background is ridiculous so why don't you think of something more realistic so what are you going to be when you grow up? She repeated the question. And then I repeated the answer because I couldn't think of anything else. And I was, by this time, I was getting quite petulant too. And I said, I want to be a millionaire. <laughs> and then she said, absurd. And she flounced off, you know, and she went off in a flurry of skirts, as I seem to remember. Anyway, so that was that. Uh, and you know that most people would perhaps, most kids would perhaps say, oh my God, I." You know, I said something stupid, and now Miss Gates is going to tell Auntie Louise, and she's going to complain about it to my parents. You know, oh dear, I've made a mistake. But you know, my reaction was completely different. <laughs> I said, right, <laughs> I'm going to become a millionaire. I'm going to prove Miss Gates wrong. You know, and I think very often that's the way that things happen. That that there can be something totally unfortunate or accidental or humiliating in your existence and it just depends how you react to it and that kind of you know I think at nine years old I was a, a real blob and you know had very, very almost no positive attributes at all but one thing which I did acquire as a result of that was obstinacy and focus <laughs> so I wanted to and I kept thinking how am I going to prove this case wrong I'm going to, so, you know, when I was 13 years old, I started a company selling stamps to schoolboys and stuff like that, yeah, which I would never ordinarily have done. But I just thought, well, I'll make some money out of that. And I did make a little bit of money. It wasn't wildly successful. And, you know, so I was always thinking about, you know, how am I going to do this? How do rich people become rich, you know, if they didn't start with money? And so perhaps it's just asking questions and being curious, you know. So it's, uh, I think... It's very important that people are curious and it's very important that they they think, you know, I would never have dreamed that up myself that I want to be rich if, if something 
like that, which I thought initially was very unfortunate, hadn't happened to me. So I think it's just the way that people react to circumstances and look for cues, perhaps, you know, sort of hints from the universe, if you want to be mystical about it, or from bloody-minded people, if you want to be very practical. So it's, it, it can arise any way you like, but it's your interpretation of experience and being really serious about what you might possibly want to do. Yeah, no, no matter what your thoughts are around that, ha having your eyes open, looking for any of these, these things that the, the universe is putting out there definitely won't hurt. I, I am wondering how you developed that intuition of yours. Uh, I know that's something you bring up in the book even of some of the other people. H how did this intuition for you develop? Um, well, all of, the, all of the stuff which I've read about intuition suggests that it comes from bit, knowing an awful lot about very little. And if you, if you look at that and think about why, what works and what doesn't work, then you can develop useful intuition. I don't think intuition, again, is a sort of generic thing. I think you can only have intuition about something very narrow. So, you know, I, later on, when I joined the Boston Consulting Group, my intuition was always about why is it that some companies become so much more successful in a very narrow area than other companies. And so, you know, my process of doing it was to develop theories about, well, was it because they were brilliant managers? You know, well, I don't think so. Um, how do you measure a brilliant manager anyway? I decided that I certainly couldn't tell who was a brilliant manager. Brilliant managers and managers who succeed. And by definition, that they've always been destined for success and you know the, it's it's just ridiculous because any successful person you can read it's like uh, horoscopes you can always find reasons why you know they were very successful and as human beings we're very good at dreaming up reasons where none exists perhaps in many cases um, so it's actually taking a narrow area and and getting as much experience of that as you possibly can by looking at uh, people who are in the area Who's successful? Who isn't successful? Why might they have been successful or not successful? Does it apply? And asking those questions, you know, will eventually lodge in the unconscious mind. And you might have an idea that, you know, the reason that you can be successful in area X is because person Y had, had done it in a completely different area. And you've been thinking about that. So I think intuition is... I wouldn't say it's something you can train, but you can feed it. You can feed it with lots and lots of questions and lots and lots of experience. And all the creative people that I've ever met have been extremely curious. Uh, you know, it's not, it's, it's not like they sort of you know, sit down and try and dream up, you know, a brilliant idea. It's that, again, the universe provides that idea, but it needs the raw material of actually having thought very seriously about lots of those things. Richard, I, I love having this conversation. I, I could do this for hours. Um, great conversations, I think, is one of the, my favorite things about life. I would love to know, though, is there anyone throughout history, dead or alive, just not a family member or friend, if you could just spend the evening having a great conversation with, who you would love to do that with? Oh, I think that's quite easy. And so, of course, it's someone from my book. <laughs> the person is Paul of Tarsus. And uh, the reason I find him so fascinating is, well, he's, he started, he didn't start Christianity. He took over what was a failed Jewish cult 
that uh, Jesus Christ had been been sort of you know notoriously unsuccessful. Uh, he'd appeared to be very popular. He was a faith healer, very successful faith healer, but he was caught up with whether he was a genuinely a political zealot and uh, opposed to the the Romans, or whether that was just something that other people projected onto him, we never know. But anyway, he got crucified. Um, so what then happened was that Paul had, was a persecutor of the Christians, the early Christians. And then on the road to Damascus, so the legend goes, and one never knows what's in truth in these things, but he saw a vision of the living Christ. And he, you know, he describes this two or three times in his letters uh, to various churches and he uh, he said he was caught up into the third heaven well the cosmology of the time was that there was a first heaven which was quite nice and there was a second heaven which was even nicer and there was a third heaven which was God and his angels basically and no one else was allowed in apart from uh, well just the angels I suppose uh, and um, and so Paul had this experience and he thought he knew the mind of God and then he came up with the idea of a suffering God, basically. I mean, Jesus was, sort of, you know, but God could suffer. And he came up with all sorts of other wonderful ideas, which were all about, in my view, human freedom and creativity and individuality and also equality. You know, he came up with a wonderful line which said, you know, there is no man or woman, there's no slave or free, for we're all one in Christ Jesus. So, you know, equality of sexes, equality of classes, equality of people who'd achieved stuff and hadn't achieved stuff, successful and unsuccessful people. So Paul had created this wonderful vision of Christianity, which I just think is fabulous. I mean, it's, it's certainly not um, evident if you look at, for example, the Catholic Church. And I'm absolutely convinced that neither Jesus nor Paul intended to found a religion. So what I would have liked to do is get hold of Paul uh, in his last days in Spain, some people say he was in Spain, some people think that he was in Italy or whatever. And I'd like to ask him, do you think you made a mistake? Because here you came up with these wonderful ideas, but they're being formalized. And they're being formalized in a way that um, uh, is a, a almost 180 degrees different from the concept that you had. And I'd just like him to say, you know, was he happy? Was he happy? Did he die happy? Was he about to die happy? Or did he think he'd made a mistake? And I just think, because the guy was so creative and he was, you know, he wrote very elegant Greek. Apparently, I can't read Greek, but, but classical Greek. It's fantastically beautiful. And he wrote that wonderful bit in 1 Corinthians 13 about uh, love and, uh, you know, love, hope, charity, greatest of these is love and all the rest of it. A, a real poet, as well as a real organizer, as well as someone who uh, thought deeply about um, um, the most important issues. I'd just like to say to him, do you think religion's a mistake, Paul? <laughs> or are you happy with what you've created? Richard, this, this is too much fun for me. I know we need to bring a close to what I hope is only around one of many uh, at, at later dates here. But where can we keep the listeners connected with you? Uh, I know we're going to have everything linked up in the show notes, but any place you want to direct them right now? Yes, I have a website called uh, Koch, K O C H, all one word, dot net. I couldn't afford the dot com. <laughs> so it's dot net. 
And on Twitter, you can find me as at Richard Kosh 8020, 8020. Uh, and uh, that's probably how people can find me. Thank you very much. I would love to do another podcast. I'm a great fan of yours also. And uh, I've really enjoyed this discussion. Thank you very much indeed. Great. Thanks so much, Richard. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye now.